Father, thank you for bringing us together again on this um, third Sunday of Advent. And thank you for these friends who are here today to gather around your word and around um, this subject matter. And I pray that you'll help the teacher to be clear and for our time together to be profitable for all who are involved. And, and Lord, thank you for these kids who are getting Bibles today. And um, Lord, I pray that you will uh, set your word upon their hearts and and um, raise them up to be uh, women and men who love your word and have the fruit that is born because of that. And we ask that in hope and faith for them and Lord for us too, because uh, we, we are in desperate need of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, come one, come all, good morning. Well, this is our, our, our last Sunday together in this um, hodgepodge of a series that we've done on the, on the Trinity and the Bible. Actually, today's lesson, if, if we get to it, I think we will, that's my plan. Um, uh, but today, today's lesson is uh, actually focused more properly on the actual title of our series, the Bible and the Trinity and Advent. I want to talk a little bit about the relationship between the triune God and what it means to read the Bible in light of that. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that with you this morning. Um, but to kind of put the car in reverse just a little bit to remind us of where we've been, last week we discussed um, quite at length, if I remember correctly, um, the relationship between uh, Jesus of Nazareth and, and the name of God. What does it mean for God to reveal his name? Um, which is so significant in the ways in which the Bible presents God's revelation of himself to his people. He presents himself by revealing his name. Um, this gets right at the heart, really, of Old Testament theological reflection. Now, I'm, I'm slow myself to actually identify one particular theme in the Old Testament as the theme of the Old Testament. Um, but if I were pushed into a corner, all right, I think I would probably want to claim something like the revelation of Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, our God, um, to his people in a covenant relationship. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the famous covenant formula that God makes with his people. I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And that language becomes very important in the dynamic of the Old Testament, especially the prophets. Advent, by the way, is a prophet kind of time, right? I, I love the readings in Advent because we're going to get a lot of Isaiah, we're going to get Micah, we're going to get the real Bible during this time. I'm joking. Um, we're going to get um, the, the prophets. And uh, so here you have this language that happens in the prophets where now something in the covenantal relationship between God and his people, there's a fissure that's occurred and it's cutting to the very fabric of, of the identity of God's people and the identity of God himself. I mean, that's the, the risky scandal that we actually see in God's commitment of himself to be a God for these people, that that brings God into a living dynamic with these people as well. I will be your God, you will be my people. That's the revelation of God's covenant to his people. And then you get into the prophets like Hosea chapter 1, and God tells Hosea to name his first child, or actually his second child, Lo-Ami, not my people. Um, you see Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah has this, this famous vision um, in the throne room of God 
And uh, after um, Isaiah says, I'll do whatever you want, here I am, send me, then God says, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to this people. Not my people. I want you to go to this people. That's why the um, Handel's Messiah, right, and which uh, puts into metrical form Isaiah chapter 40, is so beautiful. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. So these pronouns are so important in the Old Testament. My people, this people, back to my people again. It's a, it's a dynamic. It's a lived relationship between God and His people. And in the midst of this relationship, what you have is God revealing His name. Who am I? And this is the question um, that Moses asks God at the bush. They're going to ask me when you come to reveal to them to, who, your name. By the way, is the Exodus movie out yet? Has anybody seen it? Worth going? Are, but is it good? You're like my mom. I watch these things with my mom. You know, my mom is the Bible filter, you know, on these. That didn't happen, that didn't happen. But, um. It's moving because you see You, you have to write up a little, a little pricey for us, and then we'll go and see it. Um, I, I'll be very curious to see it. But here, do they do the burning bush scene? By the way, is that burning bush scene? Is that in there? You and my mom, right? You and my mom. I, I, got, I, my, my, I, I appreciate that. So, so you had the scene, right, in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses has this encounter with a child, apparently. Um, or I like to think of it as the creator of the universe, but there's a different... Um, you know, he has this encounter with, with the Lord, and, and he asks that very poignant question. Um, what do I tell them your name is? Which is the same thing if you move back into Genesis, and you have in Genesis 32 the wrestling between Jacob and the angel of the Lord, or God himself, all throughout the night. Do you, do you, and what's so central to that is not so much the wrestling match, although that's weird. I mean, it's just the, you know, wrestling all night with God. I don't know what that looks like, but that's weird. That's happening. And then, toward the end of it, when the sun begins to come up, there's an exchange that occurs between God and Jacob, and it's an exchange that centers on naming. Um, you're no longer Yahob. You're no longer supplanter. You're now Yisrael, one who is striven with God. That's who you are now. So the fundamental identity of Jacob, it's altered in that encounter at the river Jabbok, and that's why that place is then named Penuel, the face of God. Um, so this, I mean, it's a very... But do you, uh, this is, I, I often forget this, but there's a reverse question as well that Jacob asks. And what's your name, by the way? And what does he say? What is that to you? In other words, that's actually none of your business right now. I'm not going to reveal that yet. 
which I think is intentional in the larger framework of the Pentateuch. I mean, the Pentateuch is meant to be read as a five-book structural whole. Genesis, what is his name? Well, what kind of question is it? That's not a question that's for you to ask me. And then we get to Exodus chapter 3, some, what, 10, 15 chapters later, and now Moses is asking the same question, what is your name? And in a moment of revelation, now this is where I differ from some interpreters, I don't think God's playing a cat and mouse game um, in a, revelatorily at that moment in, at, the, uh, at, the, at the burning bush. I don't think God is saying, oh, well, I'll tell you what my name is. My name is I am who I am. You know, there's a kind of, uh, a, I don't know, it's a kind of bait and switch thing. I, I, I'm, I'm not gonna, it's a revealing and a concealing. Right? I'll tell you, my name is I am who I am. I think that actually is a bona fide revelation. I am who I will be. And then when you move a few chapters later into Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, and there um, uh, Moses says, uh, I think a very powerful verse, that the patriarchs didn't know God's name. They only knew him as El Shaddai, but they, the mighty one. But they didn't know him as Yahweh, that four-letter Hebrew tetragrammaton, the four letters that's the personal name of God. They didn't know that, and that's a problem for us. It's a, it's a, it's a Bible critic's dream verse. Right? They love verses like that. Because it creates a problem. Right? You flip back in Genesis, and well, you know who's talking to Abraham in Genesis 18? It's Yahweh. It's the Tetragrammaton. I mean, the, the point being, Abraham and the patriarchs knew the name. So this isn't just a matter of, of, of knowledge, of being able to associate a name with a deity. It's pushing beyond that to say, not that they didn't know the name per se, but they did not know the redemptive and saving significance of the name and the ways in which you're about to know that name. Because this Exodus event that you're about to see is a revelation of, I am who I will be. Do you want to know my name? Do you want to know my character? Do you know, want to know who I am? You're going to know me in the redemptive movement of my people to rescue them from Egypt and to bring them into the land that's flowing with milk and honey. That's how you're going to know who I am. So that when you come to Exodus 12, right, and they're standing at the Red Sea, in one of my favorite verses in Exodus, God says, Moses, tell them, go stand to the side because I'm going to fight for them. Just go stand and watch. You have front row tickets to God's showdown with Pharaoh in the middle of the, of the Sinai Desert, or wherever they were, right? On the middle of the edge of the Red Sea. So it's a very moving dynamic in the book of Exodus where that promise in Exodus chapter 3, I am who I will be, I am who I am, is a revelation that God is, that he exists unto himself, and that he reveals that existence and that identity and the dynamic of his redemptive movement toward his people in the rest of the book. And that's why when you come to the end of Exodus in chapters 32, 33, and 34, it's so fascinating because what is God doing at that moment on the far side of the golden calf encounter when Moses asked that most audacious of questions? Can I see your glory? I want to see your glory. And God says to him, what? No, you can't see my glory. Matter of fact, if anyone sees my face, they die. That's the kind, I don't know, that's the sort of um, uh, Indiana Jones thing. You know, you can see that Nazi guy's just face. You don't want to do that. I mean, all, these, all these questions, but I'd like to see you. I'd like to have an encounter with you. Mm, you better think long and hard about that. Right? Those typically aren't happy experiences. But Moses asked that. He's hid in a cleft of the rock. 
And then in the next scene, what is God doing in the revelation of his glory? He's giving Moses an exposition of his own name. Yahweh, Yahweh, full of grace and mercy and truth, forgiving to the thousand, but by no means forgetting the guilty, and he remembers the sins to the third and the fourth generation. He reveals himself as merciful and, and severe. All that to say... There's a, dy- there's a dynamism, a dynamic. It's the only word I really have to sort of draw on about God's revelation of his name as it pertains to his triune identity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How do we name God? And the, last week we looked at, and I think it was too quickly, that's why I put it in reverse. Last week we looked at that high priestly prayer in John 17. The last, and I, I think this chapter, by the way, is well worth reflecting on at length a whole chapter in John's Gospel, a whole 23 is it, verses given um, to an elongated interlocution, a speech, a, a, a communication between God the Son and God the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a really quite... I mean, we see it all the time, don't we, in the, in the Gospel narratives, and Jesus went off and he prayed. And Jesus lifted it up his eyes and he prayed. And we get a little one-sentence prayer. So we see Jesus praying all the time in the Gospels. But rarely do we get this elongated, never I would say, do we get this elongated exposition of what that prayer actually looks like. And the last thing that Jesus says in that prayer, blinking narratively, and then we're into the passion, into his death, is he says, I have made known your name to them and I will continue to reveal your name to them. That's that phrase where you go again, well, what does that mean? It's, it's an Exodus 6-2 kind of thing. I mean, Exodus 6-2 helps me make sense of what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus is doing helps me make sense of Exodus 6-2 as well. Do you think that the disciples and the followers of Jesus didn't know the four letters that revealed the name of God? They didn't know Yahweh? Of course they did. They knew the name But here you have Jesus saying that I have revealed your name to them and I will reveal your name to them even more. In other words, the cross and the resurrection is a revelation in its totality and its fullness about who God is in God's eternal identity. This is who I am. I'm a God that is and I am for you. I've determined in my own godness to be a God for you. Not because anything outside of myself compelled it, not for any lack or want in my own identity, but simply because I've determined within my own internal loving dynamic to be a God that would allow my goodness and my love and the overflow of my love in myself to spill out onto humanity and the world and to envelop it in my Son. That's what you have uh, in John 17 when Jesus says, I'm revealing to them uh, your your name. So that's what we did last week. This week, what I want to talk about a little bit, uh, you want to ask any questions about that before we press on? Any, want to fire something from the holster? Angry about anything? (laughs) It's shopping season. I'm sure you're angry about something. (laughs) Yeah. Well, today I want to talk just a little bit about the relationship of the Word and the Spirit in the Old Testament, the Word and the Spirit, and how that helps us understand the Bible. Okay, so it's just a few, a few things here, the Word and the Spirit. Um, let me read Psalm 33, verse 6 to you. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the Word of the Lord, the heavens were made, 
So by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all their hosts by the breath or the spirit of his mouth. I want to read that verse one more time, because this is heavy here. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and, by, and all their hosts by the spirit of his mouth, um, he gathered them. <coughs> What you find in the Old Testament is that rarely is God separated from his word and his spirit. By the word of his mouth, that word that comes from God, that's differentiated from God, yet at the same time shares the same identity as God. This is the tensions that you begin to feel. So it comes from God, but shares the same identity with God. That's the agent by which God creates the world. Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God hovers, that's His Spirit hovers over, and then God said, let there be light, and there was light. How does light come into being? How does the world come into being? By the effective power of God's own word. Now let me start to explain this a little bit, because again, I think the Old Testament begins to frame for us, or at least it begins to create tensions for us about God and God's identity that in time, Trinitarian theology helps us to make sense of. The Word of God is something that's distinguished within the Godhead, but at the same time shares in the same divine identity as that Godhead. And the same with the Spirit as well. The Spirit is different, but at the same time the Spirit shares within that same divine identity. That's the, and if your brain is beginning to ooze out of your ear, welcome to Trinitarian logic, right? I mean, that's what happened. It's, it's, it's where the God, is God one? Yes. Is God differentiated in himself? Yes. And it's that reality that the Old Testament itself pressures onto us to be able to think through how are we going to frame this and what kind of language are we going to use to make sense of it. Right. Um, so, so I wanted to read you another verse here. Isaiah chapter 55. How are we doing on time? Okay. Isaiah 55. <coughs> verses 10 through 11. Uh, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... And return not thither, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. My word goes forth from me. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So God's address to humanity, God's word to humanity, does two things in the Old Testament primarily. We could differentiate this in multiple ways, but this is my schematic this morning. Number one, we see, and these are, really, are related to one another substantially, God's word is effective as a creating agent. God's word goes forth from God's mouth. And as his word, distinct from him, yet related to him in identity, the worlds come into existence. God creates by the power of his word. But God also redeems and reconciles and saves by the power of his word. 
Like the snow comes down and the rain comes down and it does the watering that it needs to do so that, so that the vegetation can sprout. So too does my word work that way. I send forth my word and it does not return to me empty. It's effectual for that for which I sent it. The word is powerful and effective to do God's own redeeming work. It's why I think we make what might seem to be a rather bold claim to actually identify God with His Word. God is His Word. And His Word is an act of reconciliation. God's Word and the activity of God speaking and communicating Himself to humanity is never a neutral activity. It's never a neutral activity. It's an activity that either draws or repels. It does, and it can do both at the same time. This is a hard word, by the way. This is meat and potato stuff. It draws and repels. Um, you, you think about uh, what God says to Isaiah in chapter 6. You're going to go forth and be the means for my word to go forth. Okay, that's, that's, I like that. I mean, you think Billy Graham, thousands of people come into faith. Sign me up. That sounds like a pretty good gig. And what does God say? Well, your word is going to be the means by which I shut their ears and make them blind. And, and no one's going to listen to a word of what you say. Well, I like the Billy Graham part better, I think. Right. Whereas you have the other side as well, where the word goes forth and it gathers and it sows where it wills and it does what it seeks to accomplish because it is God's own. He sends forth his word. It will not return empty. So God's word, which is identified with himself, is the means by which he reconciles and communicates himself to humanity and establishes a relationship. Some of the most profound things I think that we can think about and value as Christians is the confession that God has spoken and is speaking. Our God is a communicating, speaking God. He's not left us to ourselves to figure out who he is, but by the power of his word has spoken into our world to reveal himself. This is the logic of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. No one has seen the Father at any time, but the Son explains to us, reveals to us, who the Father is. God, who are you? Look long and hard at my Son, who is my Word. This is my Word. This is my Word incarnate. So you begin to see how important it is when we think about our faith and Christian doctrine to see how various aspects or or topics of Christian doctrine, all fit and fuse onto one another. The fact that we believe that Jesus Christ is the Word of God, which that is, He's distinct from the Father, but He shares the same divine identity as the Father, and He comes into the world as the Word incarnate. He's the Word. And Scripture as well is the Word of God. We confess it to be so, but Scripture is the Word of God in a derivative sense in the sense that it witnesses to the Word. That's Scripture's power and authority as the Word of God, because it communicates and witnesses to Jesus as the Word. And when Jesus speaks and when God speaks, that is his sanctifying and his um, saving work. All right, so I wanted to see that uh, here. The The creative and effective power of God's Word, it goes forth from him. It's identified as him. The Word gives us the Spirit. And the Spirit uh, gives us the Word. Now, uh, two, uh, one more verse here I want you to look at. And it's one that I think most of you know really well. Don't check out. 
If you've left the room, come on back. Second uh, Timothy chapter three verse sixteen. Uh, this is a verse that will be familiar to many of you, and it's a quite a controversial verse actually. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. You've heard this verse, I'm sure. All Scripture is inspired by God. Now, I've been listening, and I make these recommendations to you all, and I'm going to make another one to you. If you can get your hands somehow on Gerald Bray's Anglican spirituality class that he taught at Beeson, uh, Victor sat in on this course, I believe. Um, they have the, D- the CDs available. It is outstanding. I, I mean, I tell you, uh, Gerald's a friend of mine, you know, so it's hard. You, sometimes you don't think of your friends in these ways. Gerald's a friend, but this guy's got like four brains. He's not a normal human being. Um, but with his four brains, he's, he's just incredibly lucid and clear. You know, he's got this clarity on the far side of the place. I just think, I think very highly of Gerald. Um, but Gerald said, was telling the students, and apparently, you know, edit this bound, don't, don't repeat this. Apparently, Gerald, Gerald's classes have to be highly edited. Um, you know, he, he, he speaks in ways that uh, are uh, provocative at times. But one thing that he said that they didn't edit out, he said he tells students all the time that he does think that there's a special place in hell uh, for preachers who use Greek words or Hebrew words in their sermons, right? It's like, he says, he said, first of all, this is Gerald B. Classic. Gerald's like, they probably don't know what they're talking about, number one. And then number two, it's not like it's really going to help anybody, right? So, I mean, I, 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 that, that, so if Gerald hears this, my apologies to Gerald. The Greek word here, I wanted to tell you, for this God-inspired, is a word, theopneustos. That means God breathed. But this term here, pneustos, pneuma, is the Greek word for spirit, right? So that if I were to open up the Greek, I'm sorry, Gerald, but the Greek translation of Genesis 1, 1 to 3 and 2 Timothy 3, 16, what is it that hovers over the deep that then draws the chaos into an ordered cosmos? It's the Numas, it's the spirit, it's the same word. So scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3, I think Paul here is being strategically thoughtful and creative in the way in which he's describing scripture. He's using creation language. As God's spirit was the agent for his word to bring the world into his existence, that's the same kinds of categories that we need to think about when we think about the Bible. It's God's Spirit that inspires us. It's God's Spirit that animates this. It means for us that the Bible is um, a living dynamic in our, in our midst. It's not a cold, dead dynamic or cold, dead reality. It's a living thing. And this is where someone like John Calvin, who's again a hero of mine, but John Calvin would say, we don't have the Word of God without the Spirit of God, and you don't have the Spirit of God without the Word of God. And that language, this is actually becoming fresher to me in my preparation for this class, that language that Calvin is using derives from the Old Testament itself. God is, God is rarely separated from His Word and His Spirit. We don't have the Word of God without the Spirit of God. To the point that I think we can make a kind of claim like this. 
Without the operative and effective work of the Holy Spirit, the Bible is nothing more than black words on a white page. Might as well be Jane Austen. Might as well be Boethius or Cicero or whatever kind of classical inspiring thing you like. Might as well be that. I mean, there's great authors out there. By the way, this is, maybe you won't like this. Authors a lot better than the biblical authors out there. Right? A lot better. Um, but there's something that we claim about this book here that's related to God's saving economy for you and for me that's attached to the very living presence and dynamic of God in our midst. With that in mind, I want to just read you a few things if you haven't checked out yet. This is what Calvin says. Because this is the case about the Bible and its relationship to God's own Trinitarian reality, the same spirit, therefore, Calvin says, who has spoken through the mouths of the prophets must penetrate into our hearts to persuade us that they faithfully proclaimed what had been divinely commanded. I mean, here Calvin says, the same Holy Spirit of God that had to inspire a David to, psalm, to pen a psalm, or a Moses to write what he wrote, or an Isaiah to write what he wrote, that same Spirit has to penetrate into our hearts so that we can confess that what they say is true, and it's true for us. The same Spirit. Here's another uh, claim here from a a fellow named Herman Bavink. He says, The Bible, like creation, cannot be construed deistically. What does he mean by that? In other words, we don't view creation, at least I think from a Christian Orthodox perspective, in a deistic way. What does that mean? That means we don't believe, or at least I don't believe, maybe you do, we'll talk about that. I don't believe that God created the world set it on its course, and now steps back and just watches the world go along its natural course of laws and regulations. And then every once in a while, God sort of steps in here and there. I, I, I believe, I think with Scripture, that God, by the power of His Word in conjunction with His Spirit, continues to sustain creation to the very moment. In other words, without the effective presence of Jesus and the Spirit, atoms would come apart. I really believe that. Right? Now, I know that sounds crazy, but I, I genuinely believe that. So I'm not a deist, right? I mean, of course, I believe that the sun is going to come up tomorrow morning. Um, or better, the world's going to keep spinning, however you want to, you know, where observational standpoint you want to view that from. Um, but the way in which I want to talk about that in my family is, well, there, there God goes again, right? Bringing that thing up. Wow. Right. Look at the tide. You know what? It's fall again. The leaves are changing. Look what God's doing again. So that's, I'm not a deist. But I don't view the Bible deistically either. As if God has now given us this word and then it's just going to sort of do it. No, it's God is governing and supervening and overseeing his word and his work um, even, even now. Why? Because Bobbing goes on to say, it is the eternally ongoing speech of God to us. Um, Gerald had mentioned in this class that I was listening to that during the season of Advent, there was often a Sunday that was given specifically to reflection on Scripture and the importance of Scripture. I tried to follow that up, and I've not landed on any sources on that yet, so my, my source is Gerald. Um, um, but isn't that interesting that in the season of Advent, we're called on to, to think about the importance of Scripture. Why? Because we are in a, in a season now of anticipation and hope for His coming. And what sustains us in these moments of anticipation and hope when we're caught in the tension of our real lived existence before God? 
what sustains us, what gives us hope in the reality of Jesus' absence is the promise of his presence in his word. That's why we come hungry to his word. And that's why we're not dismissive of his word with all of the goofiness that's in there. I've got friends of ours who were in a church recently, um, like last week, right? And I guess the text that was read was, and God comes like a thief in the night. And the priest got up and said to the congregation, I don't really like this text. I don't like thinking of God that way. We need to think about God this way. Right. You just go, that kind of stuff makes me say profanities, really. I mean, I, you know, I think you're probably right. Like, really, really bad words need to be said when you hear things like that. Why? Well, for, not, for multiple reasons that we could go on analyzing, but for the primary reason, I mean, we're called on, I believe, as Christians, to have by nature a hospitable view toward the Bible. A big welcome mat should be at the front of the Bible for us to say, you know what, I'm not claiming I understand everything in there, and I'm not claiming that everything in there comports with how I understand the world. I've got to think through a lot of these things. But the, but the mat at the front door is a hospitality mat, not a hostility mat. mat. Why? Because of our confession about what we believe this book to be. It's God, the eternal God's continued expression of himself to us. So that's what leaves us, I believe, when we come to the Bible, given our understanding about God's continued involvement with it and why we're hungry for it. It puts us in a position of prayer. It puts us in a position of humility to say we continue to need God's presence and we need God's help to help us to believe that what God says in his word is true, however, however we come to terms with that, and that it's true for us and, and, and for our lives. So... That's what I want to talk about today. You want to ask any questions or thoughts? I've got a question. Matt. Uh, um, talk about in the Old Testament, you rarely see God acting independent of the Word and His Spirit. Um, what about the, the incarnation? Now, that seems to be, okay, Jesus is kind of taking center stage there. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and and this is, these are these big terms you know, that theologians sort of concoct. Um, to help us make sense of that question right there. And the term for this one is, oh, this sounds pretentious, please forgive me, but the, the term is circumincessio or perichoresis. Sorry. Um, and what the, I know, Ger, if Ger, Gerald is going to tear me up if he sees me. Don't, do not repeat, this does not leave this room. All right, these words do not leave this room. But the term, the terms are austere and a little, you know, obscure. But what they mean is that God as a single divine essence, brace yourself here, there's only one God, there's one divine essence, but there's three personae in that divine essence, that the individual persons of the Trinity never act in isolation from the other two. They are perichoretically, right, interpenetrating each other at every moment, whenever even they take on their particular role that they do in, the, in God's redemptive economy. Um, so there might be, like for example, at Pentecost, the Spirit kind of steps forward, right? And here's the Spirit is shining. But the Spirit, again, from a Trinitarian dynamic, is never absence. The interpenetrating presence of the Father and the Son. And when the Father, because some people identify the Old Testament God as the Father alone. I'm, I'm resistant to that. But I'm okay with it if someone understands by that the Father in perichoretic relationship with the Son and the Spirit. 
I mean, so um, that, that's one of the ways in which I think we navigate that. The, the individual persons of the Trinity never act in independence because it's a shared divine essence. Yeah. Oh, goodness, that's deep in stuff. So I'm sorry. Um, my wife's not here today to sort of mod- modify. Yeah. I don't want to get this wrong, but I, this was helpful to me if I understood it correctly. I'm trying to somehow uh, use uh, English words. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, no, I'm sorry. I feel. Maybe a cousin of what you're saying, trying to understand and get some insight into this, that God the Father decrees, God the Son accomplishes, and God the Holy Spirit empowers. And I think that's very fine, yes. In other words, we want to claim, and this gets back to your question as well, Matt that the individual persons of the Trinity have roles to play. That's why they are individual persons. Right. But because it's a shared divine essence, one has to be very careful about how one understands personhood in a divine context. Because we think in analogies, don't we? But our analogies, when they move from the bottom up to God himself, will always break down. It's always analogical thinking. It's never univocal thinking that just corresponds one-to-one. God is a father like we're a father. Nope, not. It's very, very different, actually. Now, so we have to think about that, but, but, but that's, that, that's all right. Uh, there's one theologian I've been reading recently who said he'd be happy if the term person just got thrown into the trash can when it came to talking about the divine, um, the, the divine identity. And I, and I get what he's after, because we tend to think about our own personhood in the way which we relate to one another as opposites and differences, but that's not quite the same as the divine persons that share the same actual essence. You and Jane don't share the same essence. But, anyway, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Mark, could be stretching? I mean, let me know if this is valid or not. But, uh, it is. Thank you. Okay. Uh, um, if you're translating pneuma as breath and logos as word, to think of it that... You can't have a word, you can't articulate a word without I love it. the breath. Yes, I love it. And I think that's exactly the dynamic where they're after. Yeah. And they're all, and, and, and you need a mouth, right? So right. the mouth and the breath and the word, I mean, all, yeah, 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 certainly, certainly. And, and, and the church fathers were brilliant at putting all that stuff together. Yeah. And holding tensions together. Right. There are, there are I mean, yeah. you know this famous line from Cyril of Jerusalem, he warns, there are dragons there that one can get, you know, there are dragons in this. There, there are real rocks to crash on when you begin to talk about who God is. Um, because you can claim something, and in the effort to claim something, you deny something else in the process and unwittingly make a, you know, so it's, it can be dicey. Yeah. Is, is yes, sir. A, I think, I guess it's Hebrew Ruach, the same thing as Numa. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yep. So, so Ruach um, is the Hebrew term for spirit, and the Greek translators will do Numa. But, but it's also yeah. a word for wind. Wind and breath. And that's why, you know, words, this is sort of a linguistics 101, but words, words have a broad semantic range. They can mean multiple things, and that's why you have to sort of wrestle with each context. I mean, the, the parting of the Red Sea. It's the Ruach that comes from the east. It's the wind that comes from the east that blows this thing up. Um, you know, so yes, it depends on certain contexts of how one understands Ruach. And in fairness... There are those who will read Genesis 1 as nothing other than just a very simplified wind, right? And they won't do the sort of overly personal reading that I'm doing. But this is where I think one has to wrestle with how does one allow a two testament <coughs> canon, our Old and New Testaments, to inform our particular readings of said text. That's the dynamic I think I'm trying to wrangle with. Yeah. Anything else? The short of today is 
Um, I hope you love your Bibles. Right. <laughs> that's, that's the nutshell for the day, right? I hope you love your Bibles. Let me pray and I'll let you go. God, you're, you're, you're so kind to us and, um, and, and you've, um, you've humbled yourself to communicate your own infinite person in the finite character of human language and words. It's, it's your grace to us that you've left us with your scriptures. And I thank you for a church like Advent, Lord, that we're, this is a Bible place. People around here love the Bible. I'm so grateful for that. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that it won't just be a kind of intellectual, we're curious about this or that, but it's we come at these things intellectually and spiritually and affectionately, Lord, because we're hungry for you and we know that you've not left us alone. And we don't want to be alone. We don't want to be left to our own resources and our own cognitive abilities to make our way through this world. We'll be lost without you, Lord. And so thank you for giving us a word that comes directly from your own person that's saving and life-giving and teaching and reproving and correcting. And Lord, that gives us a word of hope to hold on to when what seems like in our own lives everything else is sort of crashing around. So thank you, Jesus, for being the word. And thank you for giving us your spirit to enliven these human words to be your very own, Lord, to be your very person to us. Um, And we ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.